Well, good morning, church, and uh, welcome to worship uh, again. Uh, actually, hopefully the last time we're going to uh, gather in this way, kind of, uh, for worship, we're hoping that if everything goes well next week, we'll uh, be able to do a uh, live stream with you all, and we are really looking forward to that and uh, to not being by ourselves when we record these sermons. That would be uh, really nice. But uh, as you know, as Pastor Ed just read for you, uh, we are in Acts chapter uh, 9 again. And before we even get to uh, what we're going to talk about this morning, I just kind of want to recap really quickly what we talked about last week, looking at the first 10 verses in Acts chapter 9. And uh, we, we, saw, uh, we saw Saul uh, there uh, on his way to Damascus uh, with uh, orders in hand uh, to round up those Jews who uh, were believing in, in Jesus. Uh, we saw a man, we, we, we took a look at, at Saul's life leading up to that point, kind of a quick snapshot and talked about what he was about and what it was that he was thinking and, and the zeal that he had for God's righteousness and seeing what God had promised uh, come about in the world. And yet Saul had seemingly let his zeal run free in his life without ever stopping and asking that critical question of why, why he was doing that, uh, of being willing to uh, check his own intentions. And, and because of that, for as good as the things that Saul um, were that Saul wanted, uh, he had gotten off track. And, and we see that and we could see that. But um, one of the things that we, we focused on talking about uh, last week and, and as we get into this week, I want to remind you about is that um, the truth of, of the fact that the, it, it's harder to stay focused on the right thing the closer we are to God. By that, what I mean is, is that the more we are involved with things that are about Jesus, the easier it is for us to not be about Jesus. Uh, because it's so, everything's intertangled. Everything seems uh, to connect that we're, we're, we're doing things in the name of Jesus, and yet we can be so far from Jesus, actually. Uh, Saul's life here uh, up to this point and on the road to Damascus uh, shows us that. And so we need to be willing to do what Saul wasn't and, and, and to do what Jesus ended up having to do. And that is ask the question of why. why. Why am I so about this? Why am I so passionate? Is it for Jesus or is it for something else? Has my life become about something other than what it started out being? And so we, we talked about that, and we talked about how difficult of a question that is, but also that we can ask that question, and we should be willing to, as followers of Jesus, and doing it all the time, that it's the most important for us to ask that question. Uh, because when we do, we then open ourselves up to the grace of God, the grace for forgiveness, for repentance, and, and, and for new life in him. And so that's an amazing thing that he offers, offers us. And so and just in a quick snapshot, that's what we talked about last week. And so now we get to the passage this morning, and I actually want to do something kind of weird with you this morning. I want to start at the beginning, or at the end. It would be kind of normal start at the beginning, right? So if you, go to, if you go to the very end there in verse 31, Luke kind of sums up not just this passage, but everything that's been going on. And he says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 
Luke, Luke takes a moment here at the very end of uh, everything that's been going on with the Saul's conversion, the stoning of Stephen, all of this crazy stuff has been happening uh, leading up to this point. And he says, before we go any further, let me just remind you. Let me remind you what this is all about. Let me remind you about the bigger picture because with all of this stuff, it's so easy to get lost, to, to lose sight of the forest for the trees. And, and so he says, just remember what this is all about. And, and the thing about it is that Luke has already done this once before. In, in chapter 6, verse 7, he, he kind of summed up that section and everything that had come before up to that point. And, and he says this, and, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Luke will do this four more times as, as we walk through the book of Acts. Uh, that every time it seems like we're kind of uh, have the ability or are um, given the chance to lose sight of really what's going on about what this is all about to 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 lose the purpose of, of why all of these things are happening. Luke draws us back and he says, now let's not forget the bigger picture. That Jesus is actually doing what he promised. That is, he is building his church. That that's what's going on here. When we go back to Acts chapter 1 verse 8, this is the purpose statement that Jesus gives to the disciples. That This is what it's all about. He says there, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Luke is taking a moment here to re-clarify, to, to tell us that, you know, for as, as haphazard as this all looks, as, as nonsensical as all of these things seem to be, and, and none of it seems to fit together, I mean, some, stuff, some of the stuff is, is kind of crazy, right? And yet it's all built into the purpose. It's all for that particular purpose of God's church, his church, being built up. This is a recap moment that Luke is giving us. It's a moment to re-clarify because it's easy to get our own idea of what all these things are about. It's easy uh, to get fixated on one particular aspect of it and say, this is it. This is what it looks like. This is what we should care most about. And Luke says, whoa, hang on a second there. Let's remember the purpose. Let's remember that it's bigger than just this one thing. Uh, there, there's, a, there's actually a business principle kind of built on this. If you've ever read um, the, the book uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins, he talks about something in that book called the hedgehog concept. And, and it's actually based on a Greek parable where the Greek parable says um, that the fox can do many things, but the hedgehog can do one thing well, and, and, and uh, kind of explaining that uh, a little bit is uh, the idea that uh, foxes are sly. Fi foxes are, um, they, they know how to do a lot of stuff. And, and so it, in their pursuit to catch a hedgehog, a, a, fox, a fox knows uh, how, to, how to run well, uh, how to play dead well, how to pounce well, how to uh, sneak around well. But with all of the things that a fox knows how to do well, a hedgehog knows how to do one thing great. And that is a hedgehog knows how to roll up in a ball and use those spikes that it has to protect itself. A hedgehog knows how to survive. And better yet, a hedgehog knows how to thrive because instead of doing a lot of things good, 
it does one thing well. And, and so taking that idea, Jim, Jim Collins uh, took a look at uh, businesses in the United States and he wanted to know what separates like the great ones from the good ones. And he, and he said it's this idea, this hedgehog concept that, you know, when you're trying, when you're trying to do anything, and this goes so far beyond just br- business principles, when you're trying to do anything that is spectacular, when, when you undertake a huge task, there are going to be a lot of things that you can do good. And, and, and it would be so easy to settle for those and say, we've got to do this and we've got to do this and we've got to do this. But he said, what separates the good from the great is the ones who are able to say, but this is the one thing we're about. And, and, and to keep that in focus and not be distracted by all the good things, but to be able to say even no to some good things so that you can say yes to the great thing. Uh, I, I think probably one of the best examples for this and how this goes how this pertains to our life, even if we're not trying to run a business, is uh, weddings. That weddings are this huge, amazing thing that we try uh, to put on, and and yet it's so easy in the planning of a wedding to miss the purpose, right? Uh, to, To get distracted by all the good things and lose sight of the great thing. I think of my own wedding, and I look back on it so fondly, but at the beginning of our planning stage, uh, Hannah's parents uh, handed us a check, and they said, uh, here you go, this is the money that we've saved up and we set aside for uh, your wedding. And so, just so you know, this is our gift to you, and you can do with it what you want. If you want to plan a wedding, if you want to throw a big event, you can do that. That's great. Uh, Have that. But if you want to elope and take this money and invest it or have a great honeymoon or any of those sorts of things, you can do that as well. It's yours. Do with it what you want. And for like a split second, well, maybe a little bit longer, to be truthful, uh, we talked about the idea. What, how great would it be to, to just do something small, to even elope and then go and have the honeymoon of like our dreams, like go around the Mediterranean and, and, and that sort of thing. And um, Man, that was really enticing. But as we talked about what we wanted our wedding to be and um, what we wanted it to be about, we, we really felt like our wedding gave our families an opportunity, an excuse to get together um, in a way that was not very common uh, for both of our families. Our, our families had gotten bigger. They gotten spread out. They were uh, across multiple states. And we decided that the one thing that we wanted our wedding to be about was our families coming together and, and just uh, not even necessarily them being there with us, but our wedding getting to be an excuse for them to get together with one another. Um, but we'd like the idea of them being there with us too. Um, and, and so we decided instead of eloping and going off and having this extravagant honeymoon, uh, we were going to have a wedding, but every decision we were going to make was going to be to the end to the, for the purpose of does this help our family enjoy their time together? And so, um, and so we didn't go for this extravagant thing. It, w- it wasn't about what kind of dress Hannah could have or, or, or could, we, could we have this a- a amazing venue or, or the food that was served. No, it, it was about how does all of this help our family get together. And so, and so we did things like uh, we had a golf outing and, and, and we, we did it real simple, but it, it was an opportunity for us to just spend uh, the day together um, during the week of the wedding and uh, our family helped uh, with the food to keep costs down and, and, and all of these things just simply so the purpose of everyone getting together could be accomplished. 
I can tell you what, it, it was so hard to keep that front and center because as you're being met with, you know, decisions about what kind of food you want, I mean, you start talking about all the different things that you could do, uh, the people you could hire. I mean, you, people were like, oh, we use this person for, for our wedding, and it was amazing. And they, they talk about the kind of hors d'oeuvres they had and all that kind of stuff, right? And it's easy to lose sight in that moment of, yeah, but does this, is this going to help or is this actually going to take away from the main purpose of our wedding. And, and we had to keep that focus. We had to be, have that hedgehog concept of this is the thing. There's a lot of stuff we can do well. There's a lot of stuff that's good. But this is the great thing that we're after. Luke is telling us here, as he reclassifies this, as he sums everything that has happened between chapter 6, verse 7, and now, he says all of this stuff that we look at that we're talking about, you might think it's great, and you might be tempted to kind of isolate it and say, this is what it looks like. This is what we need to see more of. But he says, remember, the reason it's great is because it was going towards the purpose that God's church was growing. People were coming to know him. Lives were being changed. Don't lose sight of that. And so here in verse 31, at the very end of our passage this morning, Luke actually kind of spells out for us. What are the things that were happening? What are the things that we should be mindful of that we need to look at ourselves? He says three different things here. And he actually, as he does it, he actually walks us backwards through the passage. And so that's what we're actually going to do this morning. We are going to walk backwards from verse 31 up to verse 10. You guys are in for a treat because I don't think there's another pastor anywhere that is foolish enough to try to do something like walk you backwards through a passage. But we're going to give it a shot. And so what we see there in verse 31, the first thing he talks about is that the church, the, the, the spectacular thing was the church had peace. And so what we see God doing is God establishes unity. There, if you start in verse 26 and kind of read there, verse 26, verse 30, we, we see that Saul has to go to Jerusalem, right? And going to Jerusalem, he tries to meet up with the disciples, and the disciples won't meet with him. Why? Because they're kind of nervous. This guy was, you know, just, he was persecuting us not too long ago. And so what has to happen is, is Barnabas, who we've seen before, Barnabas has to stand up and vouch for Saul. That God uses someone like Barnabas, he puts him in a place, and he, and he uses Barnabas to say, no, what God is doing in this guy's life really does matter. And so we're told that because of that then, certain disciples are willing to meet with him. We actually get a little bit more uh, of a picture of this in, in, in Paul's own words later on. He's writing to the church in Galatia, and there in chapter 1, he said they've had some questions about, someone's come along and questioned Paul's authority. Like, is he, uh, is he really an apostle? Like, can he be categorized as that? And so Paul is, is defending himself, but he, he tells us there in Galatians chapter 1 that during this time, he had gone down to uh, Jerusalem, and for 15 days he met with Peter. And he's also, he also meets with James while he's there as well. Peter and James were the two central figures of what was going on in this movement in Jerusalem at the time. James was, uh, had, had kind of been uh, pushed to the forefront as a central leader um, along with the, the disciples. And so he meets with them, and he doesn't just meet with them to hang out. They, they don't just size each other up, but as, as he's meeting with them, I and mean, when you're with somebody for 15 days, you're going to talk about stuff that matters. And so 
we can infer that during this time, it was a time that Paul was sharing with uh, Peter and James about what God had been telling him, what he had seen, and, and the burden that he felt for going to the Gentiles with the mission, with, with the good news of, of what God is doing, that, that Jesus had opened up this thing to the entire world, and it wasn't just any longer for the children of Israel. What's more is we can imagine that during that time, uh, Peter and James helped Paul better understand uh, what Paul was seeing and how his shift in the ideas of what God's word said and what Jesus had done. So they talked about theology. They talked about mission. They took this time. God created this time in the midst of chaos, in the midst of seeming like Saul had to escape Damascus because he was about to get killed. And so what good can come out of this? God uses it to establish unity in the church, to create a common, a common understanding and a common purpose among the leaders of the church. And we see that after this time, Saul does what he does really well. He creates controversy. He stirs stuff up. He gets in a fight with the Hellenist. And so they have to take Saul to Caesarea and ship him off to Tarsus. And it's kind of funny to read this because once you see them, they ship him off to Tarsus. And then Luke instantly goes into what we read there in verse 31. He's like, so the church throughout all Judea had peace, right? And so the first time I read through this, I was like, man, it really looks like just getting Saul out of the area is the goal because this guy's a troublemaker, right? That if, that if we could just, if we can just get him somewhere else, we can have peace and that's really what we want. Things can calm down, things will go back to normal, that'll be good. I mean, we all know people like that, right? Um, maybe not such a good idea to ask that as, as a pastor, but that's not what's going on here. They, they aren't shipping Saul off just simply because he gets in a fight with the Hellenists and, and they want to kill him. Uh, they're shipping Saul off to Tarsus because that's what God wants him to do. He wants him to go to the Gentiles and, and, and to share what Jesus Christ has done. And so them shipping off is actually agreeing with and endorsing his mission, the one that he's been sharing with Peter and James these last 15 days. That they were in agreement that God was indeed doing something new and that it was going outside of what they had previously known. And we're going to see as we go later on in Acts, these things come, these themes of, of God doing something new and it not being the way that we're used to seeing it happen are going to come up again and again and again. And this is just another instance. And it was one where God made sure that they were all unified so that the church would not be splintered, that they would be able to know that the purpose was greater than all of this other stuff. And so we see that God doesn't just establish unity, but God establishes unity so that the church will grow and multiply and not so that everything can just stay the same. I think that it is just really easy for us to see all of the talk of, of unity within the body uh, that, that Scripture gives us, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Man, as you start to look through the New Testament and, and the time again and again and again that, that writers like Paul and, and Peter and, and James and John are, are just stressing the need for unity within the church. That that is what is foremost on God's heart for his people, for his church that he is building up. 
It, it, I think it's so easy for us to see that unity as like a, let's just not rock the boat, guys. Can we all just get along for the sake of getting along? We, we see it as the word is as literally peace. And so we see it as God's, God's goal is for us to have the absence of conflict in the church. That, that everybody's just going to go along to get along. That, 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 and, and that whenever that is, the best thing that we can do is maybe separate so we can just keep the peace. Just be unified is our idea. But that, that comes, I think that understanding comes out of our idea that slowly creeps in that maybe the church is here for us and the church is here for us to feel well. And, and if, if things aren't peaceful, we're not going to be that comfortable. But the reality is, is that God is actually after something greater than peace. He's after Shalom. He's after his wholeness. He's, he's actually after things uh, to be the way that they're uh, meant to be. He, he's after this idea of wholeness in the midst of differences of opinion, in the midst of conflict. That we can disagree on things. We can actually disagree on some important things. But we remain unified around the importance and the priority of the purpose that God has. The purpose Luke has just reminded us about, that his church will grow and multiply. That we are united by the theology of who God is and what God is doing. We're not united by our preferences and that everybody likes the same thing. He establishes unity so that the church can grow and multiply, not so that everything can stay the same. Saul represented change in the church. He represented going to a new people, including them, and we're going to see a few different issues come up pretty quickly because of that. But they were unified because they were certain this was what God was doing, and it was all for the purpose and sake of growing his church. The second thing that Luke points us to here in verse 31 is he says they had peace, but then he also says, and were being built up. And so we see God equips leaders. If we go back a little bit further, I know this is weird, kind of walking backwards. Um, it feels weird to preach this way. But as we go backwards, we, we, we see Saul preaching in the synagogues after, after Ananias touches him. And, 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 and we, we see him go instantly to that. And I, I think what's interesting about that is um, I, I was just kind of trying to put myself in that situation. It's like, okay, if I saw someone like Saul get saved and, and, and then have this amazing thing happen and all these disciples are, are around that are believers in Jesus. And I, I would be thinking, wow, this is pretty incredible that a guy like him, that like he's our poster boy. What's more is he probably knows more about scripture and Torah than the rest of us combined. And so here's our preacher. Here, here is our guy to, to talk to us and, 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 and to preach to us and, and to build us up. This is going to be great. I'm so thankful God has given us. And yet Saul goes off and he starts talking in the synagogues and he doesn't seem primarily focused on the disciples that were already there in Damascus, those who already believed. That Saul saw his mission as spreading the gospel, proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God. It says that it, it, actually because he did that, it, it confounded the Jews. God is equipping a leader seemingly not to build up his disciples that are already saved and know him, 
but actually preach to and reach those who don't yet. Uh, there in, uh, just kind of a quick historical note too, that there in verse 23 then it says, when many days had passed, and most scholars are in agreement that later in Galatians chapter 1, where Paul, said, Paul is telling uh, the church in Galatia that uh, between uh, his conversion and the time he went to Jerusalem, he went to Arabia. And seemingly, it seems like for quite a few years. And they believe that this is where it happens. That Luke, trying to fit all of Acts, everything that's going on here in one school just has to sum up a number of years that Paul is off in Arabia receiving instruction as well as uh, probably preaching and teaching there uh, too. Uh, he just has to say, well, over a few days. And so what seems to us like a pretty quick thing is actually multiple years here. He tells us that it was three years between his conversion on Damas the road to the Damascus and then going to Jerusalem there in Galatians chapter 1. That's kind of a side note. But Saul goes there. God is, again, equipping Saul. He's equipping this leader. And then he comes back, and he keeps doing the same thing, and he upsets people even more. And that makes a whole lot of sense because what Paul was saying at that point would have probably been just as upsetting to those who believed in Jesus versus as well as those who didn't. That he was saying, hey, this thing isn't about just you guys as, as the children of Israel. This isn't just for the Jewish communi community anymore. You know those people who we feel have been oppressing us? God loves them too. God's about them. God died for them as well. That Jesus Christ is sending us to care for them in, in ways that we really don't want to care for them. That we cannot see ourselves as greater than they are. God had raised up a leader and, and Saul to, to do this, to say this, to preach it. And so we see here the truth that God equips leaders so that the church can grow and multiply, not so that we in the church can feel more comfortable. I think it's truth of our lives. I, I, I think it's I say that because I've seen it in my own life, but I see it in Scripture, that we have a tendency to want our leaders to do something for us. Those that we attach ourselves to, those that we look up to, the way we choose pastors, people we listen to, books we read, authors we like, is that they do something for us. That is, they maybe, maybe they comfort us. We feel safe with them. What's more, maybe it's the idea that by reading them, following them, ascribing to their ideas, we feel some kind of status that maybe they provide for us. Or maybe it's just the fact that they affirm us, that everything we already believe, they believe too. And what's more is they give us good ideas and, and ways to describe it that backs all of that up. They affirm where we're already at, and we really love it when people can tell us we don't have to change our positions or the way we feel about things. We want our leaders to do something for us. And we, and we see this with, in Paul's life and, uh, when he's writing to the church in Corinth. And there in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, But brothers, I could not address you as a spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul says leaders aren't given so that you can attach yourselves to them, that you can say that this is the one I'm all about versus that one. Leaders are given, they are equipped so that they can build you into God's image, that they can lead you to God, that that it's all about him. Again, remember the purpose. The purpose isn't for you to be with that preacher or that teacher. The purpose isn't for you to be able to say, I've read all of that person's book. The purpose is for you to be changed into the image of Jesus Christ, to know what it is like to have surrendered everything to him and to be living fully for him. He doesn't give us leaders so that we can feel more comfortable, so that we can feel affirmed, so that we can point to it and say, don't I feel good about the fact that this is the one I listen to. He gives us leaders so that we can be equipped for the work of ministry, that we can be equipped to help his purpose, the growing of his church, come about. This is, a, this is a hard thing for us to realize in the moment. And it's so helpful when we have people that will help give us this perspective. I, I can remember when I was, when I was in eighth grade, I, I transferred schools. And I, and I transferred schools primarily because the school I was at before um, uh, wasn't going to have a basketball team that year. Didn't have enough kids to do it. And what's more is they were pretty terrible before that. The year before, we won two games, and it was the first time the school had won a game in five years. And so uh, the school I transferred to in my eighth grade year was, if there's any such thing as a middle school powerhouse in basketball, this was it. They, they were known for winning. They were feared every time you played them. And, and they had this coach who had been their coach for, oh, man, decades. And, uh, and so I, 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 I go to the school, I tried out, I made the team, and it was the first time I'd ever been in a situation where I was actually like really coached in basketball. It was the first time I'd ever had to do uh, five days a week of practice, which I thought was crazy. Like, who does that? That was unheard of to me. We would watch film. And, 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 and then watching film, that was just such a weird experience to have like somebody like watching you and critiquing you to your face and saying things about like y- your game and how like... You're just not that good and all all of this stuff. And it was overwhelming for me at first. It was overwhelming for me to have somebody that was like telling me, challenging me to get better. I had always just had coaches. I mean, rec league coaches and up to that point, even in middle school coaches that were just like, hey, yeah, you're good. Like go out and work on this stuff, but no real direction. And somebody actually say like, this is what you're not good at. Get better at it. And, And what's more is to have a coach that actually yelled at you. And I remember it was one point I was really low and I was really struggling with it. And I was telling my dad, I was like, I, I don't know if I want to play. The coach doesn't like me. He yells at me all the time. He's always on me. It seems to be more on me than any of the other players. And my dad had to tell me, he said, Matt, the reason he yells at you is he believes in you. And I was like, you're crazy. That is not a real thing. Who yells at somebody? Uh, because they actually like them and they believe in them. And yet the truth of the matter is, is good coaches 
get on the players that they believe in the most. Good coaches see how much more you can do and they're willing to push you. My dad said, when he stops yelling at you, he doesn't believe in you anymore. The leaders in our life, when they stop challenging us, they've stopped believing in us. They've stopped believing that we can be something more than we currently are. They stop believing that we have what it takes to, 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 to better ourselves, to, to become better. When they don't ask you to do the hard things, they have given up on you. God equips leaders in the church so that the church can grow, so that the saints can be equipped for the work of ministry to do things that they never thought possible in their life, not so that we can be comfortable. He's given me leaders. He's given you leaders in our life, in our walk with him, to push us, to challenge us, to, to, to be willing to do things, go places, give up things that we never thought we would. Why? Because they believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, we can do those things, that we can become more like him. And when they stop, we all want them to stop, right? We, we, we all just, can't you just let us be? Can't you just let us do our thing? But when they do, it means that they've given up on us. They've given up on the hope that we can be what Jesus is calling us to be. The literal translation for what Luke says here in verse 31 where he says, and the church was being built up, the literal translation is make more able. He's, he's saying, and the church was being made more able to do what God wanted it to do. It was made more able to accomplish the purpose of growing the church, of reaching people with the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. God is doing that in each one of us, not just a few, not, not just particular people. He's doing that in all of us so that the church can grow, and he has given us leaders to help that happen. The last thing we see there in verse 31 is, is kind of, is a little bit longer of a statement. It says, And the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. As we walk backwards and we find ourselves there with Ananias, the last thing that we see God doing here is that God forces a choice. If, if you look there with me, verses 11 through 14, I'm just going to read it uh, again to you just really quickly. Jesus addressing Ananias, he says, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints of Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. What's interesting about Ananias' response here is how he contradicts himself. He starts off in the right place. He, he refers to Jesus as Lord and everything that that entails, right? That, that he is over everything, that he is the master, that, that the, the way he says, what he says goes. I mean, that's the thing about being a master in those days, right? Like you created re reality for those around you. I mean, if you said the sky was green and, and, and anybody dared say it was blue, they were wrong, right? 
And, and so Ananias gets that. And so he says to Jesus, he says, your Lord, but then everything that comes out of Ananias's mouth after that is how maybe Jesus isn't right about this guy, right? Maybe he's off. Maybe Jesus got it wrong somewhere. Uh, this guy, he's done some stuff. I've heard about this guy. Other people have told me and their opinions of him. Not that great. Are you sure he is who you say he is? Are you sure I'm not going to get arrested by going over there like you say I should? Ananias shows us how easy it is for us to do this, right? To, to, to hold Jesus in a place, to, to hold anything in a place, and then and, and say it out loud, but then immediately contradict ourselves, right? I cannot tell you how many times I have yelled at my kids to stop yelling at one another. Or threaten to spank them for hitting one another. I mean, just the, the complete contradiction. I mean, we all know how annoying it is when the person refuses to help us with the yard work, but then pulls up a chair on the patio with iced tea in hand and then tells us how to do all of the yard work, right? I was thinking about this in my life and how I do it and just like how, um, how I see it. And I, I realized like one of the ways that we do this, um, or at least I, I've seen it happen, is um, my wife Hannah hates to drive refuses to drive whenever I'm around, always says, you're the one that's going to drive, and yet she doesn't hate to critique my driving. And I'm always like, you know, if, if you want to drive. I, I, I'm sure nobody else's you know, spouse does that to them. I think it's just a, our thing. I was thinking about that and that example. And I was like, I can see a few ways that my wife does this. I can see a lot of ways my kids do this, but I was thinking about like myself, and I was like... I was having a hard time coming up with examples. And then I asked Hannah, and geez, uh, I wish I hadn't asked. This idea of contradicting ourselves that Ananias shows us and, and how easily it happens, and we don't even realize what, what's going on when it does happen, right? It shows us how easy it is for us to see this in others, but not see it in ourselves. And so because of that, we, we have to know and, and that it's, so easy for us to do this in the church. I mean, just for one example, uh, how often are we willing to say that we believe that Scripture is God's word, except then we argue against it? Uh, certain places where God says, well, that's sin, and we say, well, it's not that bad. Or what about how much God holds to unity in the church, and yet when unity is hard, when it's difficult, when it requires sacrifice, we're willing to ignore that. And yet we still maintain God's scripture is God's word and we've got to stick to it, right? But we can do this. Ananias brings up these reservations to Jesus and Jesus doesn't back down. Jesus actually just kind of repeats himself. We'll get to that in a second. But what we see going on here is that God forces a choice so that the church can grow not just for our own growth. See, this is a growing opportunity for Ananias. It'd be so easy to say that God wants to help Ananias expand and his strengthen his faith in Jesus. And that is part of what is going on, but there's a bigger picture here. 
there's more going on here than just Ananias. And as I was thinking about that and, and, and thinking about his reservations, the thing that kept coming to mind, and I was like, maybe I shouldn't talk about it. And then it was just like, well, I mean, maybe the reason I can't get it off my mind is God wants me to talk about it is, is the fact that our church is in a worship transition right now. And it's, it's not fun to talk about. Um, it's scary. In, in the conversations I've had with people over the last few weeks, um, as I've talked with people, there is a real and understandable sense of worry about what does this mean. That um, I, I can sense in people a, a question of, well, is this really what God wants or is this what it looks like for a church to just disappear? Is, is, is this what happens when you, you turn away from the things that have worked in the name of trying something new and you find out that they don't work? How do we know that they won't work? And I've heard that time and time again and said in different ways and all I can say to that is I, I get it. And I get it more than you might think. Um, I thought about saying something like as a blanket statement for the pastors during this time, but I realized all I can really say is from my own, me personally, and it weighs on me as a pastor. Um, it would be a lie to say that since we've sensed as pastors and, and leadership in the church that this is what where God is leading us, what God wants us to do, it would be a lie to say that every day has just been like straightforward, let's do this, um, no thought of, uh, no doubt whatsoever, we're completely convinced. Um, every day, I've thought about how hard this will be for people. Um, haven't had to wonder how people will feel. I, I know how people will feel. We, I, I know how much music and, and worship matter, worship through music, I should say, matters to people. I can tell you how much it weighs on me as, as a pastor to, to think, to wonder, will they think that we don't care? I think that's probably my greatest fear, my greatest worry, is to think that people don't, people will think that we don't care about them, how they feel, what, what this means to them. Will they simply walk away? Is it the right time? Is it the right way? I can tell you a number of months ago, I, I sat down with Ed and I said, you know, I'm, I'm just worried. Is this the right time that we're, we're supposed to do? I'm, I'm having serious doubts uh, about uh, this in this time frame, this way. All that is, is wrapped up in if they do walk away, if they think that we don't care, then, then is it all worth it? Is it worth it? There are so many reasons why it's not worth it that I can list off, that I, that I can say, and, and, and there are days that those, those reasons seem to outweigh anything that I can come up with as to why it might be worth it. And what I've seen as, as I've, I've thought about those things and I've prayed over them and I've struggled with them and wrestled is that God does acknowledge them. He says, yeah, that's real. Those are real worries. Those are real reasons why this is hard, why this is difficult, why anyone wouldn't do it. 
But then he always brings me back to the purpose. That he has called his church to grow, to reach people who have yet not been reached yet. And then he says, this is what I want you to do. And it's the fact that I am God, that I am Lord over everything, that I am the master. And this is what I say. This is the way it is. Is that enough to outweigh the rest of it? I got to tell you, it floored me as I read the interaction between Ananias and Jesus this week and looking there in verses 15 and 16 that, that Jesus basically does the same thing with Ananias. It says in his response to all of the reasons why Ananias thought that it was a bad idea, he just simply says, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He doesn't condemn Ananias for his doubts, for his worry. He acknowledges that those are, those are what it means to be human. There, there are moments that we have these contradictions, but he says when you find yourself in that moment, Ananias, you have to make a choice. You have to determine which matters more, the Lord or the rest of it. And so he acknowledges and doesn't condemn his doubts and worries, but he also doesn't feed, him, feed them. He doesn't say, okay, well, Ananias, let me just explain to you. Let me show you all the ways that Saul is different. Let me give you the backstory. Let me tell you what just happened on the road to Damascus. Let me give you reassurance that this isn't going to happen to you. But all he says to Ananias is, Ananias, this is what I'm going to do. And why is it going to happen? Because I said so. Because I'm Jesus. Because I'm God. And so, Based on that, you have to choose what matters more, the doubt or because I said it. And what's beautiful to me is that we then see Ananias going to Saul and the way he addresses Saul, he doesn't just say, hey, Saul, Jesus told me to come. He's kind of got, you know, arm's length away and like touches him, scales fall and he runs away. But he, he addresses him and he says, brother Saul, Were all of Ananias' doubts, his worry, dealt with in that moment with Jesus? I, I don't know. Maybe, possibly, but humanly speaking, I can imagine him walking over there. He was still a little unsure, but the th he had made the decision that he was committed to the fact that Jesus is God. And what Jesus says is the reality of the way things are. And so because of that, even with all the reasons why he shouldn't do it, he'll do what God wants him to. He was committed even maybe in the midst of his worry. In times of great trial and change, we, we, we see God here in Acts chapter 9 using, using essentials, using things like leaders and, and the unity of the church to ensure that the gospel will be shared and that it continues to do what it was meant to do. That is, grow God's church. But it all doesn't happen by accident. It all isn't happenstance. It actually, where it starts is that it begins with each of us, like Ananias making the choice about what matters more.
all the reasons why we're not sure it'll work, why we're worried that it's too crazy, that it's too different. The way that we see it or the fact that he is God. Which one matters more to us? And what we see, it's in that choice that when we're willing to choose that he is God and that matters more, that it then enables the leaders to be equipped to, to lead us so that the church can grow, not that we can be more comfortable, that then the church will begin to be unified because we keep the purpose that it's about people coming to know him front and center, that all, for all of the good things that we can be focused on, for all of the things that we can make it about, that it, we choose the one thing that Jesus told us matters. It's so, again, easy for us, I think, to believe that the choices we make in this one area, this small choice, is it, is it that he's Lord or is it all the other stuff? It doesn't matter that much. That God's still going to be able to do what God wants to do. And sure enough, his will will happen. But maybe the best way to say it is what we miss out on. By not choosing God over the rest of it. He forces a choice and in choosing him, we become gateways that the grace of Jesus can flow outward that God's ultimate purpose of people coming to know him, the church growing and multiplying, it can happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is the truth that it's so easy to lose sight of the big picture of what you're doing for a lot of really good things. Lord, I pray for each one of us this morning. Would you, would you bring us back to, to that, that central unifying reality, purpose, mission that is making disciples, your church growing and multiplying, people coming to new saving faith in you. Lord, would you help us for the times of, of doubt, of worry. Lord, we are human and we are all prone to those things, but Lord, I pray for just the, the witness of your Holy Spirit to bring us back to what really matters, to, to remind us and assure us that we are continuing in your will, that, that we are after, having asked that difficult question of why, that we are after the thing that matters most. We are after your glory. We are after your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, thank you for your grace that you don't give up on us. You keep challenging us. You keep drawing us closer to yourself because you always have more for us as followers of Jesus Christ, as your children. It's with all of the thanks and praise that we can muster up. Thank you for the love that you showed us, that we pray for these things in your name. Amen.